Coming up on this episode of Inside the Oscars. I feel like I want to get invited to the dance and I don't want to go. What does it really take to win Best Picture? Is it the script or a star-studded cast? Yeah, you're going to want to think again. Because the campaigning and all that, <laughs> well, it knocks you, it knocks you out. Plus, have you seen my octopus teacher yet? Oof, it is special. You're going to meet the filmmakers behind the extraordinary Oscar-nominated documentary. We had this pile of hard drives full of the most incredible natural history underwater octopus footage you'd ever seen. Most of the time she's jetting or crawling or swimming, but occasionally two legs come out. She walks. Hey everybody, I'm Ginger Z, and this is the third episode of Inside the Oscars. I think you can think about this podcast as maybe a crash course. The Cliff's Notes? I don't know, something to get you ready for Hollywood's biggest night. And in case you weren't aware, I am a bit of a nerd. More of a science nerd, but I do love learning how everything works. Like, break it down for me and I'm happy. So when Jason Nathanson told me that he could help dissect what it takes to win Best Picture, I was definitely intrigued. Now you always hear the winners thanking the Academy. Thank you to all of the members of the Academy for embracing... by name, every single one? I think I assumed that the members of the Academy just took a piece of paper, wrote on it, voted in a box, you know, like class president. And then the film with the most votes won Best Picture. Naive of me, I'm sure, but I really hadn't thought too much about how it goes down. And apparently, it is not that simple. But before we get into all that, let's do a little throwback the last 10 films to be named Best Picture. And the Oscar goes to The King's Speech. And the Oscar goes to The Artist. Argo. Congratulations. 12 years a slave. Brad Pitt. And the Oscar goes to Birdman. Spotlight. The Academy Award for Best Picture. La La Land. This, there's a mistake. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. Moonlight. Best picture. The Shape of Water. Green Book. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. I definitely forgot about some of those. Huh. All right. Well, anyway, those films are now in a special class, along with classics like Casablanca and On the Waterfront. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And of course, the blockbusters like Titanic and Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest, run! Run, Forrest! Winning Best Picture is the biggest honor in Hollywood, and it's handed out to producers who help shepherd a film from an idea to a major motion picture. But it takes a lot more than a compelling screenplay or just moving performances. The stellar directing, not enough to get that golden statue. Here's Jason. Ginger, we'll get into the math and the campaign tactics and the nerdy stuff in a moment. But first, a story. I'll give you a test. One, two, three, four. Hello. Larry Gleason knows all about the inside stuff when it comes to launching a campaign to win Best Picture at the Oscars. I've been a member of the Academy since 87. In his decades in the business, he's had all kinds of cool jobs and titles. President of Man Theaters. So I became the president of Paramount's theatrical group. I was president of marketing and distribution worldwide for MGM. I became the president of the United Artists, which was... And for almost 20 years now, he's been a consultant for Oscar campaigns. first picture I worked on was a film called Chicago, which eventually went on to win the Academy Award. I mean, you know, certainly this year I've worked on all the Netflix films. Ma Ramey's Black Bottom, Manx, Midnight Sky, Chicago 7. 
And four years ago, he was there in the Dolby Theater in Hollywood, the night his film La La Land, the film that was the frontrunner, the film most people thought was going to win Best Picture, won and then lost to Moonlight. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. I remember bringing my granddaughter, who was probably 12 at the time, mm. when the fiasco happened. You know, we were just all upset about it, to say the least. And I remember myself and a couple of the other consultants that worked on the movie, we met down in the lobby, just totally upset. There was a lot of cursing and a lot of the F words were used uh, right in front of my little 12-year-old granddaughter who was standing in the background going like, Oh, my God, her first Academy Award was to hear, these mother, how could they do this? How could this happen? How stupid could this be? And that's really kind of the Oscars in a nutshell. You can have a great campaign, win almost all the precursor awards, with a movie about movies featuring A-list stars, win six Oscars, and still end the night dropping F-bombs in front of your 12-year-old granddaughter. Because as much science and math as you throw at the Oscars, at the end of the day, movies are about how they make you feel. And that's just completely subjective. But there are things you can do to improve the chances that your film has a shot at being in the room come Oscar night. Some involve math, others involve shrimp. So let's take a look at how a film becomes a Best Picture nominee. First, we have to figure out what's eligible for Best Picture. This year, a wide range of excellent possibilities. From Bill and Ted Face the Music. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. To Wonder Woman 1984. What did you do? And to qualify for Best Picture in a normal, non-COVID year, a film that's at least 40 minutes long needs to play in a theater in Los Angeles for seven days before the end of the year. That's it. It doesn't have to sell a certain amount of tickets or come from a particular studio or be in a certain language. Just play in a theater for a week in L.A. But because of the pandemic, theaters in L.A. were closed during the latest eligibility period. So the rules for this year were changed. Theatrical releases in a few more cities counted, so did drive-in theaters. And the biggest change, for the first time ever, films available exclusively on streaming services were eligible. If they were going to be shown in a theater but couldn't, as long as they were also made available on the Academy Screening Room. It's the Academy Streaming Platform that we have available to all of our members. It's a web website and an app. That's Tom Oyer, our rules expert. I am a senior director in the member relations and awards team at the Academy. He's the guy to talk to when it comes to the Film Academy's Oscar rules and process. And did you study math in college? <laughs> I did not. I did not. <laughs> this year, when it comes to films eligible for Best Picture, there were 366 that met the criteria. It's the biggest number in 50 years, but not all that out of the ordinary. It's always been in the 300s. So now we have our eligible films, 366. Then for the nominations for Best Picture, the whole Academy, all 9,412 members, they picked their top five and rank them in order of preference. Their number one fil favorite film of the year must be in the number one's position, followed by their second, third, fourth, and fifth. For example, someone writes down Mank, Chicago 7. Sorry. They type in Mank, Chicago 7, Minari, Nomadland, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Someone else with, let's just say, different tastes, types in Bad Boys for Life, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, Palm Springs, The Christmas Chronicles 2, and Nomadland. Come over and join us. No, I'm just going to take a little walk. Then, through a magical and thoroughly complicated process, the top fives of all 9,400-some-odd members of the Academy turns into up to 10 Best Picture nominations. Specifically within Best Picture, it cannot receive less than 5% of the vote. So it means right now, the number of possible Best Picture nominees floats each year between 5 and 10. This year, it's 8. 
The reason why involves something called the preferential voting system, which we'll dissect later, I promise, in great detail, and a mind-numbing formula that I swear is not worth getting into. Because starting next year, they're getting rid of it. Just know that after this year, there will always be 10 Best Picture nominees. What is worth getting into, though, is why in 2009, Best Picture went from five nominees, which it was for decades, to 10. The Hollywood Reporter Scott Feinberg blames it on the Batman movie The Dark Knight, which many were sure would be nominated for Best Picture in 2008, and it wasn't. Why so serious? You know, the way people looked at it at the time who were upset, they're saying, we are never going to be able to give you a more critically acclaimed popular movie and you still didn't nominate it for Best Picture. Though some would argue plenty of popular films not only got nominations when it was just five nominees, they also won, including Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and a little movie called Titanic. But whatever, now there's room for Black Panther and Roma in the same year, and most would say that's a good thing. Best Picture, by the way, the only category nominated by all 9,000 members. See, the Academy is made up of 17 branches. You've got Actors Branch, Directors Branch, Writers Branch. And for the rest of the nominations, members. only the directors nominate for Best Director, only the writers nominate the Best Screenplay categories, and so on. But everyone gets a say for Best Picture, making it the most populous category in the bunch. And that's where the Academy's recent push to diversify and expand its membership comes into play. The Academy at that time, I think, was 85% male and white, and over 60 years of age. Our campaigning expert and Academy member Larry Gleason is talking about a 2012 report in the LA Times which stunned the world by revealing, and Larry's numbers are a little off, that nine years ago the Academy was almost 94% white and 77% male, with a median age of 62. You know, you could always say you have an Academy screen, you can always tell by the number of walkers that you hear clicking down the aisle. <laughs> but the Academy has worked hard to change those percentages, bringing them more in line with current U.S. demographics. Since 2015, it has more than doubled the number of women and more than tripled the number of members from underrepresented ethnic and racial communities. More diverse members nominated more diverse people in films. So now everything is humming. Our 9,000 members are nominating their favorite five movies, just picking the best five films they saw, right? The best five of those 366 eligible films. We're assuming 9,000 people, many with full-time jobs and lives and kids and dogs. All of them in the last year watched 366 movies? A movie a day? Nobody is watching 300. They're not watching every movie. I would say your average Academy member probably goes to vote on nominations, having seen anywhere from 12 to 30. Now, that's not a scientific fact from The Hollywood Reporter Scott Feinberg, but he probably talks to more Academy voters in a season than anyone else. And that is the reason why these studios spend a lot of money on campaigning and billboards and events, because any of those things increase the likelihood that you might actually watch one of those movies. Which and that's the ballgame. With so many things fighting for people's attention, the most important first step is making sure a movie gets seen. Enter the Oscars campaign. And it's probably a lot more like a political campaign than you know. Think of the pre-nominations campaigning like the presidential primaries, where everyone flocks to New Hampshire for retail politics. It's like a whistle-stop tour. Eating local foods and kissing as many babies as possible. Scott Feinberg says in Hollywood, they're doing the same thing. You shake hands with the person, they're nice to you for two minutes, and you feel like they're that you're buddies if you saw them again. And you're like, that's a nice guy. I may want to 
all things being equal between that person and somebody I have nothing to do with, I'll probably vote for that person. During non-COVID times, in the months leading up to the nominations, there are screenings of the movies studios are trying to push almost every night. Academy members get to attend for free, usually seeing stuff way before the general public. So that's an incentive to be a tastemaker, to say you were first, to see the thing that everyone will be talking about. But that's not always enough of an incentive, so screenings will often feature a Q&A afterwards with the stars, and after that, a small party with the stars, and free booze and food. In his years working on Oscar campaigns, Larry Gleason has thrown a lot of these bashes. People love movie stars. Even people in the industry love movie stars. There are a lot of people who are in the industry who, my God, that's George Clooney over there, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, but wait, these people work in the movie business. You're telling me they're easily swayed by a free cocktail and Gwyneth Paltrow saying hi? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, to, I mean, to, to be clear, you can't take a bad movie and, and spin make it, it good. and schmooze it no. to an Academy Award no, nomination. No, you have to have you have to have the goods. And the campaigning, it's not for everyone. I feel like I want to get invited to the dance and I don't want to go. Because the campaigning and all that, it, will, it, knocks, you, it knocks you out. And Eric Roth, who's nominated this year as a producer on Mank, he has a bit of experience. Nominees for the best screenplay based on material previously produced or published are Eric Roth for Forrest Gump. His first nomination came in 1995. He won, by the way. Lucky to be the son of Mimi and Leon Roth, who were up there somewhere, who gave me their love for movies and their love for life. My parents were there. And I lost sort of my geography when I was on the stage. And they were up in the balcony. And I said, and up to my parents up there, everybody thought they were dead. <laughs> so all these people called like, oh, my God, we didn't know your parents had died. He's been nominated for writing The Insider, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and 2019's A Star is Born. That's a lot of Oscar campaigning and a lot of parties. You can't believe the people that show up. I mean, all of a sudden, Mick Jagger walks in or Paul McCartney or, you know, it's like just uh, I'm a fan like anybody else, so, you know. And it feels like, wow, I'm part of this group. You know, it's like, where, who invited me? And that's all part of the plan. So hopefully when you're filling out your nominations ballot, you remember not only the movie, but the experience of seeing it. When Brad Pitt shook your hand and called you pal as he sipped Cristal and ate one of Wolfgang Puck's tuna tartar cones. And but at the end of the day, I won't tell you who said it to me. A very famous director who lost for a number of times said, and he finally won, but he said, I got to go take a good shower. Because it's after a while you start hearing your own voice and talking about yourself and the egocentricity of it's all a little much. You mean Hollywood stars don't always like being the center of attention? Larry Gleason says, yeah, star egos and personalities come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them don't do it. Robert De Niro is one that, is, you know, is, is not very good at it. <laughs> the reason he won't do it, and he knows it, is he's a very shy guy. But for the most part, they all play the game, knowing that getting their film or themselves a nomination means more people see the movie, they could get a cash bonus, and a win, says Eric Roth. Changed my whole career, um, gave me a cachet to go write pretty much anything I wanted. And that's the dream. But just like with politics, there's an ugly side to campaigning. There are certain people who were incredibly good at manipulating some of the media to bring down movies. Just like the smear campaigns of politics, movies get smeared too. Their reputations dinged, hopefully just enough for someone to pause before writing its name down on a ballot. 
Disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein's name comes up a lot when you talk to people about Oscars campaigning. Some say he was just great at getting his stars to wow voters at meet and greets. Others say he was far more sinister, planting stories in the press that may or may not have been true. When A Beautiful Mind was running away with the Oscars, there were a few things that got leaked to the Drudge Report and then went everywhere about the subject of the movie had actually made some anti-Semitic comments. In 2002, Weinstein's film In the Bedroom was going up against A Beautiful Mind for Best Picture. He denied doing any negative campaigning, but the LA Times says it caught one of Weinstein's strategists pushing the negative stories. And Weinstein apologized. And it still goes on, though the Academy forbids it. In 2018, Best Picture frontrunner and eventual winner Green Book faced a bunch of bad press. So just keep that in mind if you hear any negative stories about the nominees this year. They may be totally relevant, but just ask yourself, why is this coming out now? And one other thing to consider, especially for this year, is how the pandemic has affected campaigning. Those fancy parties with the all-you-can-eat shrimp? That's not happening. It's all online Q&As, which can get the word out. But Larry Gleason says it's no substitute for the star-studded shrimp fests. It is quite as in the same of no. being uh, on, on a Zoom call where... Uh, Sasha Bauer and Cohen is telling you how he knew about Jerry Rubin for the last 25 years and has been wanting to play that part. Sasha would have told you that and shook your hand as you were leaving. Right. Today, it's like, oh, did you cut out a little bit? <laughs> and to the Zoom call. So did the campaigning or lack thereof this year make any difference in the nominees or will it make a difference in who wins? We'll likely never know. It's certainly easier for the voters this year to see as many movies as possible. No driving, no traffic, no getting a bad seat. The Hollywood Reporter Scott Feinberg says, remember, all the movies are right there in their homes on that special screening site. You know, stuff that your average movie buff in like Sheboygan would dream of. Yeah. They're like, wow, if I could go for free to a movie or get them sent to my home, I'd watch a movie every night. But again, voters aren't watching a movie a night. They can't. And that is why campaigning is key. So back to the ballot. Your movies made it through the eligibility process, the nominations, campaigning, and congratulations. You're one of eight nominees this year for Best Picture. Hooray! You'll go through another, more targeted round of campaigning, and then there's one more hurdle to consider. Probably the most confusing hurdle of all, the preferential voting system. Can you easily explain the preferential voting system? No. No. Wait, hold on. You're in the Academy, you consult on movies, and you, you campaign for movies for a living. And That's right. You're on the board of governors, right? For the yeah. for the Oscars. Yeah. Um, do you do you know how the preferential voting system works? Uh, I do. I do. Can you I, explain it easily? Um, I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah. The preferential ballot has been compared to the Electoral College because when it comes to Best Picture, the movie with the most first place votes doesn't win just like the presidential candidate with the most votes doesn't win. How it works is the voters don't just pick a winner, they'll take all of this year's eight nominees and rank them in order of preference. Then the accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers will count if any film, say Nomadland, gets more than 50% of the first place votes, it wins. So coffee? Uh, yeah, sure. Easy, right? Except we're told that rarely happens. So next, and this is why you rank your choices one through eight instead of just picking the winner, we start redistributing votes. Remember our Academy Rules expert, Tom Oyer? He has the best analogy for how this process works. Let's say you have an art gallery with 100 people attending, and you have eight paintings, and you want to find out which painting is the broad consensus favorite of everyone who's at that art gallery. In other words, which painting is best painting? You would first have everybody stamped, all 100 people, 
you ask them to first stand in front of your number one favorite painting out of the eight. Eight paintings, eight lines of people in front of the paintings. Painting one has the most people with 39. Painting eight has the least amount of people with five. First you would see, do I have 51 people in front of one painting? Chances are you may not, right? Because that's the goal, to get to half plus one. So you go to the line with the least amount of people painting eight. The five people over here painting number eight, please ask you to please move to your second choice. And that's why you rank your ballot. Your second place votes now become first place votes of the seven movies, I mean paintings, that are left. And then you reassess. Do any of the seven now have more than 50% of the vote? No? Okay, let's do it again. Everyone standing in front of painting seven, you move to your second favorite painting. And you keep doing that. Until you get to a point where you would have 51 members in front of one painting that would then clearly have the most broad consensus of support. Make sense? I hope so. So let's talk about the intention behind it. What the preferential ballot essentially does is it guarantees that the winner is a movie that everybody at least, or you know, the vast majority of people at least like. The Hollywood reporter Scott Feinberg points out that if it were just a straight up vote and say there were 10 nominees, a film could win Best Picture with 11% of first place votes. That would mean 89% of people didn't think it should win. The preferential ballot, by taking into account second place and possibly third place votes, aims to give us a consensus winner, the film that most people like enough to put it near the top of their ballot. Because in the end, as Mank producer Eric Roth says, this stuff's all subjective anyway. It's an oddball honor because it's apples versus oranges. You know what I'm saying? It's one man's taste versus another. It's what makes horse races. So now, hopefully, you have a little more insight into Oscar night, the long and winding road these films have taken to go from one of 366 to one of eight to hopefully the one. Best picture. And Ginger, hopefully you're not more confused than when we started. Oh, I am not done with my questions, so Jason will help me out right after this. We also, by the way, get to go inside the story of one man's incredible bond with a sea creature. It's a film all about an octopus. Don't go away. Wow. I learned a lot, Jason. Thank you for being here. I still have some questions. <laughs> I think so get ready. Um, you know what? The most alarming part is the potential for the dirtiness of, of what could be happening. They should make an Oscar-nominated film about this. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure they will at some point, and it'll star Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yeah. And, and he was really the one that kind of took that smear campaign to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. There's been a whole lot of changes in the rules to make sure that that isn't necessarily the case. But at the end of the day, you can't stop people from and publicists from whispering about a right. film. Hey, did you did you hear that this person or this thing about this? And, and uh. I've seen them about this year's. So one of the quote unquote smear campaigns that, that that are going around right now is about Nomadland, right? That's the front mm -hmm. runner. And you might have seen there have been some negative stories about how the film uses Amazon and how it depicts mm -hmm. Amazon workers. And it shows Amazon workers and the, the whole working at Amazon. Like it's is, awesome. Right. It's great. It's friendly. It gives people <laughs> yeah. money that pays them really well for those yeah. seasonal jobs. But if you go back to the book, it's not so, you know, nice and pretty. Mm. Um, and so some people are saying, well, the film is kind of whitewashing that. Whole right. Thing. Huh. Interesting. I don't know. I think because I think Amazon's such a small part of that story. I don't know that that would sway me that much. And you can handicap these things, you know, from now until Sunday. And it, there's all kinds of different formulas. But the preferential voting system is is mm -hmm. very important. Right. And one of the 
award shows, the precursor award shows that everybody looks at to kind of predict what might win Best Picture is the Producers Guild Awards. Um, mm-hmm. You'll hear that a lot. Whatever wins the Producers Guild Award, and I think it's eight of the last 10 years. Oh, that's that's good stats. Right. Has gone on to win Best Picture. And one of the reasons is the Producers Guild is the only precursor award that uses the preferential voting system. Oh, Got it. Because it's the like that is an apples to apples, which I thought was really, you know, nice to hear from someone who's in there saying (laughs) this apples to oranges because it is subjective. At the end of the day, it's how it makes you feel. And that's why, you know, in the campaigning thing, yes, it's about how a movie makes you feel. But also say you go to a movie, you and your husband go to a movie, Mm -hmm. you go to dinner afterwards, you have a really nice Mm -hmm. dinner, you have a nice talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. You, you are going to remember the night, not just the movie, the night, everything surrounding the experience of seeing the movie. That's what in the campaigning they're trying to create, not just mm. did you like the movie, which you might have or you might not have, but they're trying to give you an experience. I like, too, that the the change coming, like the 10 films and the Dark Knight sparking that, that was all really interesting because it starts to make you think that they are open to change because if things aren't working, well, let's make them work then. Sure. Absolutely. And there's always going to be somebody who says, well, this film should have got in. This film should have been one of the top five or the top 10. When you have 10, you just have more opportunity, right? And what the Oscars is, yes, it's an award show and everybody goes and they win and everybody's happy afterwards, or maybe not. They get nominated and that's cool. But the other part of what the Academy is trying to do is sell movies. Sell the experience of going to movies and sell the movies themselves across the world. So there's no better advertisement for movies than (laughs) the Oscars. And most people haven't heard of a lot of the movies. So Mm -hmm. when you're watching an award show that, you know, and there's 30 million people in the U.S. watching and, you know, maybe tens million, hundreds million more around the world. um, It says, hey, this movie exists. We're going to show you some clips of it. Here are some of the people who are in it. And maybe you want to go see it. Well, here's what's different about because I've been very invested in asking friends, family, colleagues, everybody about the films, just because I'm interested more this year than ever, because I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> and I maybe it's who I surround myself with, but they're like, Borat was my favorite, or my octopus teacher. Like, it really is not any of the films that uh, I would have thought. No. So <laughs> you take that for the Academy. You have 9,412 yeah. people that are all doing the same thing. They're watching mm-hmm. uh, My Octopus Teacher. They're watching Borat. They're watching The Father. They all have their own tastes. And so mm-hmm. the ball game is getting pe- people to see your movie. Okay, so what do you expect? It's interesting because we go into these and things are handicapped and we see a pattern going. And right now, as things stand, Nomadland is the front runner. That's <laughs> probably going to be the one that's going to win Best Picture. Now, when it comes to the preferential voting system, right, you don't want to have a divisive film. That's, that's like, like La La Land, say, for instance. Mm-hmm. People love La La Land, absolutely. But there are some people who are never, they're never going to watch it because it's a musical. Oh, divisive like that. I'm like, wait, what's divisive about dancing? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> okay. and, that, and that's the thing. Or a black and white film like Mank, right? Some people yeah, will just no. say, not going to watch it. Black and white. That's no. not my thing. Um, yeah. So it's the the preferential ballot usually favor favors something that is the more crowd favorite. Um, so like a like a Green Book uh, a couple yes. of years ago, right? That was the that was the nicest, the easiest access I think movie of that year. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that Parasite won last year. I didn't mm-hmm. think that that was like a broad appeal type movie. 
Um, it's great. It's great. Yeah. I didn't think it was broad appeal. Um, so this year, I would say like a movie like The Trial of the Chicago Seven is probably mm-hmm. more of the broadest appeal of all of the yes. movies that are nominated, right? You look at the yes. f- the father is is a very tough movie to watch. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah is kind of in that area as well. Um, Mank though is a love yeah. it or hate it film. Um, Minari is a is a is a love it or, or kind of like it film. I think for most people, yeah. um, Promising Young Woman is you know that's a like it film, but I don't think it's a broad appeal film necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. And Nomadland, which which it surprises me because I don't think Nomadland is it's not the film that jumps out at me. No, that's not. See, when you say that, and then you're like broad appeal, I'm like that's not Nomadland. You know, it, I I think Trial of the Chicago Seven would be. It's it's funny. It's entertaining. The dialogue keeps you the whole time. I don't know who doesn't sit down and say at least I learned something from this film. Exactly. But one thing that I know so far, anybody that has seen My Octopus Teacher has liked it. And and there were 366 films eligible for Best Picture this year. That's a record we haven't seen that many or we haven't seen that many in 50 years. Um, And one of the reasons is that documentaries get included in that Best Picture eligibility. And there's an explosion in documentaries right now. Uh, One of the reasons being that there's just a place to see them. Netflix, Hulu, you know, Mm -hmm. Disney Plus, you name it. They're, they they need that content and people love documentaries. And we've never had, uh, even though these films are eligible for Best Picture, we've never seen a documentary nominated for Best Picture. But I think that that's going to change probably in the next five to ten years. That's great news. I'm a huge doc fan. And I was a huge fan of My Octopus Teacher. And that is where we get to go next. I spoke to the directors, Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed. Oh, I can't wait to share that with you. Thank you so much, by the way, Jason, for breaking it down. I I think I'm like 50% there to understanding how the Academy works. My pleasure. (laughs) I like math, but you know, I like science and I'm way better at that. And that is why I think I loved my octopus teacher so much. And I got to speak with the filmmakers, Pippa Ehrlich, James Reed, both helped put the film together and they told me how they did it. Wow, thank you so much for making this film. Before I had seen it, someone told me, well, a couple of people warned me, oh, get ready to ball. Get ready for the the Kleenex out. And I had a very different reaction. My reaction was jubilation and joy and kind of a celebration of just the film as a whole, of someone caring so much about this microchasm. Is that what you're hearing from people or am I dead in the heart? (laughs) That's good. It's, it's fantastic you reacted like that. I mean, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think that I think people would agree that like we've we've had a real range of of responses to it. Amazingly positive, and and I think everyone's found it really emotional. You moved me. Um, so let's just go to the beginning. I guess Pippa, tell me how this starts. So I got introduced um, to Craig really by by a really good mutual friend of ours about. Five or six years ago, I went diving with them, and, and it was a very unusual dive because the water was freezing and we weren't going to wear wetsuits. The water drops to as low as eight, nine degrees Celsius. The cold takes your breath away, and you just have to relax. And then you'll get this beautiful window of time, or 10, 15 minutes. Suddenly, everything feels okay. And we dived in what looked like a very shallow, kind of empty area. But I realized very quickly in the water with Craig that he was picking up things and seeing signs and finding animals and and identifying behaviors 
that I had just never dreamed were possible. And I started diving with Craig regularly and he kind of mentioned little snippets about this experience that he'd had with an octopus, but he'd never said too much. Um, and then he said, look, I think I'm going to make a film and I, I wonder if you'd like to help me. Um, and he sent me a treatment and I, I read this treatment and I just started crying. Uh, and, and it just resonated with me in a way that I never expected. We had this hmm. pile of hard drives full of the most incredible natural history underwater octopus footage you'd ever seen. Shots of uh, Craig and the octopus dancing together underwater. And octopuses zooming around with fish. Her pulling her sh the shells on top of her like a kind of transformer creature. It was just the stuff dreams are made of. I remember there was a strange shape to my left and just going down and seeing this really strange thing. The fish even seemed to be confused. And then suddenly, at the time, I didn't know. I'd witnessed something extraordinary. We started with really quite a broad story. We went into some of the stuff that he'd learned from other films he'd made about people and nature. But as soon as we started cutting the story of the octopus, um, all of those other threads just started to fall away because it was such a compelling story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we sat down, had a conversation about it. How do we sort of deliver this amazing story? The interview process seems a real obvious one, but I think that it took being a complete outsider to come in and to, to do that part of it because I could enter into it with sort of more genuine curiosity at that stage. I didn't know the story, I didn't know Craig and I really wanted to know it. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I got the opportunity to sit across from him on his kitchen table in South Africa for three days and just really dive into what that story was and what it meant to him. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. There's something special about her. Unlike, uh, you know, Ceres Planet Earth or Blue Planet or something, those are kind of like highlight reels. Yes, they spend years documenting to get those moments, but you only get the moment. And that is the, the t t kind of testament to what Craig was able to do because he was mm -hmm. so committed to his affection for the octopus, but also to finding out everything that he could about her world, to his kind of obsessive fascination with her and the fact that every single day he wanted to know what she was doing. And he took his camera with him and he recorded what he could. And he, and he never missed a day. To uncover this special octopus, or maybe it's not that special. Perhaps another octopus would have done the exact same thing. Who knows? Uh, but how large of an area is that kelp, you know, her, her little town, basically? I would say, call it kind of 300 square meters. It's it's not huge. Mm -hmm. um, she'll she'll walk mm -hmm. 100 meters across the sand and the lagoon to hunt in a different area. But they, especially where she lived and where she denned, was just the perfect little octopus territory. And and when I've done dives, I've done them with uh, whales or with uh, different species of shark, and you know they travel. I mean, it would have been a much more difficult to first of all, make friends with the sharks that I've met, the tiger shark per se. <laughs> but it, I've, I figured it had to be relatively small. And here's the other part that maybe others have felt, but I really love the thought of her whole world being in that 300 square meters. You know, you could boat over that area or swim over it and never think twice about what's swimming underneath you. 
I think that was and a lot of what Craig believes that like you can take a very small area of wilderness and if you look close enough and you spend enough time in it and you visit it regularly enough, you start to get to know and see things that are really exciting that anybody would pass by, you know. And I think that mm -hmm. just one one other point, and Pippa, I'm sure will agree with this. We went through quite a lot of the process in the edit of like she is so amazing. Like you admire her and what she did specifically so much. And it is tempting to think she is a really special octopus. And, it, and in it many, <laughs> you know, it's possible that she is, but it's also possible that three, and another 300 meter patch just down the coast, there is an octopus doing something equally fascinating and completely different. She puts her body into this strange posture that kind of looks like a rock. And then two of those arms underneath slowly moving. So the rock is just slowly moving away. And then she changes into this extraordinary, wobbly, flowy old lady in a dress. You know, for a second I thought, uh-oh, is this going to make everybody want to go be friends with an octopus? I don't think anybody's got the time to go dedicate like he did. It's, it's, it's thousands of hours. It's, it's, it's a measure of time that you can't really imagine. Um, when he was excited about what was going on or, or when he was worried about what was going on, when he was desperate to know what was happening with her, he would dive multiple times in a day. When people ask me, and I've been chasing tornadoes since I was 19 and doing it uh, both with science and, um, of course, awe in mind, people always ask, well, why would you do that? You know, what does it help? Since I started in the late 90s, early 2000s, the amount of our just video alone that has helped us understand how a tornado works is incredible. I imagine this anecdotal science or this day-to-day -day video is instrumental. So where does it go? Who, who's begging you for all of this footage now and saying, please, we need more. We need to help, you know, predict and do all the things that we want to do with science. We're part of a, a, an organization um, called the Sea Change Project, uh, which is a, a local marine conservation organization that's focused specifically on the great African sea forest. We have a number of octopus scientists around the world who we work with, and they've done numerous studies um, with our material. There was Dr. Professor Jennifer Mather, who was a consultant on the film, took a whole lot of Craig's images of octopus camouflage and did a psychological study on human beings and how how many people are able to pick out an octopus in a frame to just get a sense of how camouflage works and, and, and how our minds work. Mm -hmm. But really what we're trying to do is, is tell stories about this environment that very few people knew anything about before the film launched. I just did a story on Biscayne Bay here in the States that has such a, a critical beyond their, they're past their tipping point. They've just gone beyond it. But um, a lot of that is the nat natural grass and how that feeds it. So this was nice to see the focus on, on the kelp and, and the necessity of that without being too heavy handed either. But it's, it's, it's an important issue that 25% of our global coastlines are kelp forest. Mm. Um, but it's just not a marine ecosystem that people think about much. And as, as you said, huge patches in, in Tasmania and parts of California, entire kelp forests have just disappeared 
in, in a space of years. And that means the octopus has nowhere to hide. It has nowhere to, you know, just, just taking that one character alone, telling the, her forest is her survival. And if there's something that you feel like people need to know about this film, if they haven't seen it, or, you know, maybe there's just one last thing you wish you could have snuck into the edit, what would that be? <laughs> so it's quite a tough one. I've got an answer, but James, you go first. Um, there were loads of things that were fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, in a 90-minute film, we had to sort of compress that down to the most sort of pivotal moments in in that relationship. So there were lots of, at the time, there were lots of things that were quite agonizing that we were like, oh, that's so good, though. But, you know, and knowing that, well, but it kind of is represented by this part of the story, so... We, you know, we, we have to be a bit brutal with it. Um, but actually, in hindsight, I feel like, you know, I'm really proud and pleased of the choices that we all made as a team. And I completely agree with that, except I'm a little bit sad that the poor pajama sharks have got <laughs> such a bad rap because they are mm. equally fascinating and, and, and wonderful creatures. These things are coming right into that crack. And the next minute, the shark is actually clamped down on one of her arms, doing this terrifying death roll. Um, I guess they're always good guys and bad guys in a story. Um, but, but, but the sharks are amazing, too. All right. Well, I, I am so grateful that both of you took the time to do this. I could ask questions all day, but thank you for the film. Uh, my son, who's five, and I watched it. My husband has been a huge octopus fan his entire life, and it was just truly something we could all enjoy and watch and captured all of our hearts so thank you for the film thank you for what you're doing thanks for being on the podcast thank you very much thank you okay if you haven't seen my octopus teacher yet i feel like you should it's on netflix i watched it with my five-year-old you could watch it with a 105 year old everybody is gonna love it and you're gonna learn and you're gonna cry and it's gonna be awesome and that does it for this episode of Inside the Oscars. We are getting close to the big night. April 25th, it's around the corner. So we got to talk red carpet. I mean, it's inevitable, but it means something different. Not just this year, but I feel like we're, we're in a movement. Janae Norman's going to break down what fashion can mean as far as informing and inspiring. Plus, we're going to introduce you to arguably the most important person on the red carpet. A real git. Our role as live event and live TV people is to make the show go on and put on a show that's memorable and that's coming up next week if you like this episode if you've learned something give us some love just a little five-star rating can't hurt a nice review even better thanks so much for listening inside the oscars is a production of abc audio produced by matt wolf our executive producer liz alessi special thanks to josh cohan trevor hastings John Green, Taryn Hartman, Beth Mullen, Carrie Strasberg, Elizabeth Russo, Hale Areno-Thiel, and Stacia Dashishko. And a big shout out to ABC's entertainment booking team, Cleo Andriades, Monica Escobedo, and Eric Jones. Our legal and standards partners, always keeping us right, Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown. And thank you to the Academy. Ha, never thought I'd get to say that. I'm Ginger Z, and I'll see you next time.